Hello, welcome to the uh, Wireless Theatre Podcast, the third, not a trilogy, we're going to be doing more, but this is the third. Yeah, that's right, uh, my name's Mark, and with me of course is Oliver Ford. Oliver Ford. So welcome, yeah, so it's a very special, uh, it's a very special time of, of the year, isn't it? Yeah, June. Yeah, it's, uh, as we're recording this, it's the Diamond Jubilee Weekend of Celebrations. The last day of the four-day weekend. The whole country's come together. Everyone's terribly proud to be British. And everyone is soaking wet and freezing cold. Yeah, actually, me and Ollie, we were very lucky, weren't we, to take part in the, the River Pageant. We were well. lucky, Mark, to yeah. be on it. But yeah. uh, at privilege, the same time, it was a privilege. But yeah. we also were freezing cold, soaking wet, because it rained yeah. all day long. But we got a little away from the Queen, didn't we? Yeah, Prince Philip was clutching his sort of bottom area going it hurts it hurts she was going oh do be quiet Philip what's wrong with you yeah and uh, easy in hospital now and coming up this week Andy McQuaid on making great fringe theatre for next to nothing if you've got a space you've got an idea you can do anything and we've got some really piping hot news involving David Hasselhoff and Paul O'Grady oh face to face festival with Colin Watkins I'm fed up with any number of theatre companies in this wonderful city of ours who will, doesn't matter what the play is, doesn't matter what the content is, they will do it in exactly the same way. Clear Dowie. If you've got ideas, you've got politic, you know, political ideas against the establishment, it's silencing you because you can't get money, you can't get sponsorship, you can't get a gig. Jeremy Stockwell. The one question they have is the same. And the question they're all asking in some form or other is... Is it all right to be who I am? And a lot of Americans seem to think it's the Queen's 60th birthday at the moment. But it's not, it's not the Queen's birthday, of course it's the Jubilee, but it is the Wireless Theatre Company's birthday. Five years old, we had a little party in the West End, and uh, we'll give you a bit more about that uh, later in the podcast. What is it? What's going on? It's, a, it's the podcast. What? So it's not the Queen's birthday then? She's, no. What's this four-day thing we just had all about then? It's the Diamond Jubilee. It's 60 years as our Queen, as our Head of State, okay. Head of the Commonwealth, 60 years. So she's not 60? No, she's 86. And it was just a, a thing set... Right, so that's what four days of the city coming to a standstill was for. Yeah, for 60 years of shaking people's hands and stuff. Mm-hmm. But first, we've got Andy McQuaid, Artistic Director of Foreskin Theatre... And he's managed. Oh, anyway, it's, uh, <laughs> it's second skin theatre, not not foreskin. Pardon, Techie. It's, yes. uh, I'm the producer, and it's uh, second skin, not not foreskin. I thought that was a bit weird. But first, Andy McQuaid, artistic director of Second Skin Theatre, talking about how to make fringe theatre for next to nothing. He had a play on in town, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he had a show in the West End for a mm. month with a budget of less than £1,000. We're here with Andy, who's the Artistic Director of Second Skin Theatre, and we're talking to him uh, because we caught up with him briefly at the Fringe Report Awards, um, and he had a lot of really interesting stuff to say about getting started as a theatre maker and the way that he did it and the way that you can do it, and we really wanted to pick his brains in detail. So, hello, Andy. Hello. <laughs> pick away. Thank you very much. You mentioned at the awards that you find it easy to sort of beg, borrow and steal stuff. Um, And you sort of, in passing, said that was because you sort of had a history as a punk and you sort of grew up in that sort of culture. I just wondered if you could kind of elaborate a bit about that and also about how that led to you founding the company. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in cardboard boxes, literally. Uh, (laughs) So I I think coming from... um, without kind of labouring a point or being too pathetic, an underprivileged background means that um, the the whole ethos of going out and being uh, resourceful, adaptive, um, not being scared to to just take something very basic and make something better out of it, just kind of, it comes a second nature. If you've got a space, you've got an idea, you can do anything. There, there's no excuse for saying you haven't got lights, you haven't got um, an LD or a designer, you haven't got a fully professional cast. You, you can create what you want to create if, you've, if you're inventive enough. I think what I'm lucky enough about, I mean, that they say that like minds attract like minds. And so pretty much all the people involved in Second Skin have got that, coincidentally, I suppose, come from similar backgrounds and find, a, the, find the challenge of creating something out of nothing incredible. Our costume designer, I think, is the epitome for me of 
of everything that's good about the people involved in Second Skin. She, she's actually a, a national designer. She works for the Greek National Theatre. Um, but every time I give her a project, and it's the, the next project we've got coming up is The Devils that's being adapted in-house. And we'll have something like 13 actors, eight nuns, God knows how many period costumes. And I've sent her the brief thinking she's going to scream when she finds out the budget is actually about 380 pounds and that's not for costumes you know? <laughs> she'll get about 50 quid of that <clears throat> if she's lucky um, and so her response jumping up and down and being so excited by it and saying it's so easy to do this with what we've got just it epitomises what we do at Second Sense yeah so I think the my, my own background and then going through the whole punk thing of you know we made our own clothes and um, we, we made everything ourselves because there was just no money for it and, and was it the punk movement that led you to theatre or um, I guess indirectly yeah yeah in, in a really weird roundabout way I mean I, I think you can say that everything you do leads to your your next path um, so through the punk movement I was heavily involved in music and um, from that, got heavily involved in bands as a musician, became incredibly disillusioned with that and working out why I was disillusioned and what was it about music that I loved but wasn't satisfying me. And then constantly thinking back to all the times I've been on stage at school in, in theatre and thinking, well, there's a huge barrier. I'm, I'm untrained, I'm 28 years old at that, that stage. It's, I knew for a fact through friends it was incredibly difficult to get into theatre um, in, into any kind of theatre with fringe even, even amateur dramatics and especially with my background being totally green but one thing led to another and it was actually at a punk club I met an actress who was a professionally trained actress called Louise Ballantyne who I bumped into with a dance when she told me she was a professional actress and I was kind of wow I'm so full of admiration I would love to, to get involved in that and she said well don't talk about it, just do it. And she gave me a phone number of a director who was auditioning at that time, um, who was a renegade director called Ricardo Pinto, who is now a legend in, in old fringe circles. And Rick was, Rick was a maverick. He was an outsider, he was blackballed at East 15. To his great credit, I gave an audition that was incredibly nervous, I felt like fainting cast me. So it was that whole thing of, you know, he was an outsider, he sent somebody something in me that was an outsider but something that was hungry um, and dedicated enough and so gave me that first first shot and so, yeah actually I've never really put two and two together before probably but you're absolutely right because from that goth punk club I I would never have I would not have known where to start you, you said some really inspirational things at the awards about networking which I've always found very difficult um, but you seem to have a really good attitude towards it do you know what I mean but also a really effective way because we, you just said you, you met someone on a dance floor and, and you know now you're making theatre full time you know so if you I guess if you could just sort of tell us a bit about how you network and, and what you do that makes it so effective um well I <laughs> it's a strange it's a strange thorny issue isn't it because I don't network um but I do meet people and I will only go to events where I have friends who are in attendance. I would never go to an event where I thought it would be good for my career. Ever. Ever. Um, but on the other hand, if I know that friends are in an event, and I know that it's going to be a fun event, and I'm going to meet some good people, and I also know that I'm going to meet people that could be useful and very good for me, I'll go. If you're really going out to these events, and I know lots of actors, lots of directors, who have spent years wearing themselves out, going to all kinds of events and parties, I know because I've got invited to them, and it's been suggested to me, you should be here. Why? The second I, I hear that, that phrase, it would be a good move for you to be here, or a good move for you to... Why? I, I've got no ambitions to being at the National. I, I would love to be doing stuff at certain theatres but I'm not in that that whole mindset of I must run up that ladder and I've realised, I've come to the, the fantastic realisation that if in three four years time I'm in Bali with an English speaking theatre with no reviewers to review me but an audience who watch what I'm doing, I will be in heaven 
as long as I'm creating theatre to the highest degree, I can, I can input and the actors can perform and everyone associated with that production can do to their abilities. That, for me, is perfection. It's perfect theatre. If you're going out networking, there's one thing you've got to bear in mind. You are going to have to sell a piece of yourself. The second you start doing that, it's a slippery slope, and you reduce your artistic, your artistic soul. And without that, I'm buggered, because it's all I've got. I have not got technique. I have not studied directing. I have not studied drama. I have a process of my own. I have my own personal system. All of it is based around instinct. So I think that what you will lose by going out for the career pattern of being an actor or a director, you will lose something along the way, which is absolutely fine. I've got, you know, I'm not judging anyone for that because they're going to they're going to be earning money every year <laughs> directing, and so for that reason, yeah, brilliant. I'm jealous. But for me, it's not the right way, and I'll fall on my face. And I, I proved that to myself before in the past, that when I've tried to be clever, I, I fucked myself up. Because what I've learned about everything I've done is that we do things differently. We are a bunch of outsiders to, to a very large degree. Most of the people involved in Second Skin are, are rank outsiders and doing things very differently. And people are, A, either don't get it, B, hate it, and C, it goes against the whole model of what makes a professional production. You, sh you cannot do things like that. Um, you should not do things like that. This is wrong. Sorry, says who? Uh, th th there is no... There are no rules. There are no rules in theatre. As long as you're, <laughs> you're telling the story and the audience have got it and the audience are left with something and possibly moved one way or another, I don't care how it is, you have achieved what you set out to do. Do you make any profit off it? And does do or and do you make enough to sustain yourself off it? No. no. Okay, so it, it's, it's not that kind of venture? It, it's not. Um, and it probably could be if we could find larger spaces and if we had that initial investment for things like advertising for things like you know getting the show more widely widely heard about but um that said we we always break even we always pay actors we always pay everyone involved in the production um apart from myself i've worked as an actor for 10 years 11 years i got paid twice um and both of those occasions were under duress so the, the artistic director knew that I would not do that gig unless I saw something of the box office, just but had enough. And I think pretty much every actor working in Fringe is so kind of weary about <clears throat> giving six weeks of their life, spending hundreds of pounds, sacrificing work, and getting nothing. Being a Fringe actor was the most expensive career I've ever had. It has cost me thousands and thousands of pounds I financed trips we, we all did working for my old company we financed so much we actually ended up financing productions because we loved it so much and believed in it so much which is absolutely should be stopped it needs to be stopped o on the other hand you have to kind of get that balance with the fact that I was so hungry to act and everyone around us in that company was so hungry to act and, and loved it so much that we didn't mind if we didn't get our rent paid at all but you do want to know that there's fair clear and proper ethical accounting at the end of each production given the choice out of being in, a, in an equity or non-equity show where you had clear proper and present accounting you knew you were going to get something that gesture payment or scrambling after work that doesn't exist it's not there and it's going to get worse it is getting worse the amount of friends i've got who are phenomenal actors i mean just actors i, I when i was coming up through through friend they were the people that I, I watched and tried to learn from and ask questions about and we're at the stage now where they can't get roles in theatre, in fringe theatre, because they're looking for named actors. They're looking for named actors in fringe theatre. 
what the fucking hell this fringe theatre come to? When I started, it was above a pub, it was free, anyone, it was accessible to everyone. Now, professionally trained actors who've spent 12 years of their life breaking their balls to, to devote to their craft, they're not even power-mad, I want to be in Hollywood actors. These are people who are devoted to the craft of acting, they're being told by their agents and by casting directors, sorry, we're looking for a named actor who's been on TV. And you've got, you've got fringe venues now that are rooms above pubs and they're costing thousands of pounds a week. That was, the most, that was the most striking thing when we were at the Off West End Awards was you get actors coming on stage and they go, oh, when we started and we would get a car up from you know, Newcastle and oh, it was just a room with some scaffolding bars and no one wants to talk about the fact that now if you try and do that, that dirty room above a pub with scaffolding bars is stinging you for a thousand, one thousand, two hundred and fifty pounds a week. You know, th- and that's why I think it's, I was so keen to come and talk to you about the fact that you guys make spaces because I think we all have to start doing it I don't think we can stop I don't think we're in a position where if you try and actually do the finances of the fringe it does not add up I I think if you're going for an outright hire uh, unless you have a backer unless you have um, you've got those funds for advertising you have got that sure fire mainstream accessible play or you have the, the the next i don't know pillow man on your hands prepared to take a loss prepared to take a hiding but if you've got backers that's fine but as for actually going for an outright hire i would never dream of doing that in a million years what's the point i'm gonna i'm gonna pen you know spend okay for an unnamed fringe theater that i know um that i could hire for 1650 pounds a week that those are my takings on a space that I can get for next to nothing or for nothing and divide that profit share amongst everyone and spend money on the production. So I think where we're at with Fringe now is we are right back. You know, everything comes full circle. In case anyone's under any illusions, we are now in a worse situation than we were under Thatcher. We, we, we just don't, we haven't fully quite grasped it yet. But we're now at that situation where people should be actively and aggressively finding spaces i think where we have to where we're at now is that when i first started time out and um, even the guardian and a a lot of publications are very much very very important to us and very very supportive where we're at now is a whole different uh, set of dynamics it's that thing where you don't even think about it it's like you send your press release off to the guardian (laughs) yeah i sent i sent them a press release Come on, let, let's be real. Um, and I, I think that's because of the whole the, the whole nature of the, the shift that we've had now. And it's not the Guardian's fault, it's not the Independent's fault, it, actually it's not Time Out's fault. It's just the way everything's gone, which is that larger theatres, um, that fringe theatre has shrunk or has been swallowed up by the, the, the mainstream theatre. Look at traditional theatres, for example that were well known for being fringe, edgy and taking those risks they won't do it now they know who they are and we all know who they are and there are more where you would be able to go along to them with any kind of wacky proposal or you could sit down and talk to them about it and they would put it on you, you, it's just impossible to do that now and there are a few exceptions I know for a fact that the Rosemary Branch uh, pentameters are still as crazy as ever. You can still contact these theatres and still say, "Look, I've got a fantastic play." This is that, and if a Cess and Leone think that you have enthusiasm for what you are doing, b you more or less know what you're doing, and c they've read that play and they like it, they'll put it on. They will give you that slot, and it will be on a profit share basis. You won't have to put money up. And you will get an audience. Um, <clears throat> but they're not in the majority, whereas eight, nine, ten years ago, yeah, you could go anywhere. You could even go to the King's Head. <laughs> well, go well those were the days, weren't they, when you could go to the King's Head no without money. you know, three grand? No money. No money at all. Lunchtime shows, evening shows, do a week's run. If they loved it enough, you had that freedom. Now it's just, come on, you know... Uh, anyway, don't get don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started about there the is that urgent need for a new set of um, <clears throat> not guidelines, but definitely some guidance. And about okay, can't do that anymore. But look, you can do this. 
and you can't get that space anymore but there's this space does anyone know about other spaces and to set up some kind of networking that I'm unaware of up till now I'm not aware of a networking it doesn't need to be where you know lots and lots of bloody actors and directors meet up and creatives meet up and try to impress everyone about what they're doing and you know covering up for what they're not doing but definitely an online networking forum where people are getting involved supporting and filling in the blanks of what I'm not able to do look I've got all of this I need help with this the young Vic have a fantastic um, solution to this um but it's mainly aimed at emerging directors. Um, it's phenomenal. Um, and so if I think if we need something that, that's much more generalised than a director's forum that would be focused on theatre practitioners as a whole, that can be very much inclusive, and probably use the, the Young Vic's um, uh, model as an example... The Young Vic, I know for a fact, because um, I'm a huge fan of, of, of everything they do there, maybe not theatrically all the time, but definitely their, their attitude, they would, give, they would give you that kind of support. You, you would be able to go into them, sit down and say, look, this is what we're, we're trying to set up and this is why. Can you give us some ideas? Can you give us some guidelines? Can you, what kind of support could you give us? You'd be amazed. Andy McQuaid, that's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Yep, you're welcome. Andy McQuaid there, the man to go to to make good theatre on a limited budget. We've got some news now, haven't we? Mm. And uh, I think we should kick off with the news that the Coronation Street musical, there's a musical about Coronation Street, somebody wrote it, has been pulled. They weren't very happy with it after a few press nights. And uh, it's been pulled or possibly just postponed. But the major problem is none of the artists involved in it, all the rehearsal process, have been paid. They haven't, well, not a penny. No. Is that the same for the crew it. as well? Yeah. And uh, one That's of the shocking. lead actors was Paul O'Grady. Paul and O'Grady. Paul O'Grady's never short of speaking his mind. What did he say, Mark, about the fact that no one had been paid for all their hard work? Where's he from? He's from Liverpool. Liverpool. <laughs> right. Akronson Stanley. Akronson Stanley, we were there, exactly. Um, this is what is killing me. I can afford it, but they can't. I feel like screaming out, pay your crew. <laughs> That's very good, good. that's not bad actually that started off a bit like and I went straight in for the end didn't I? that's really good um, anyway I'm not sure about that Coronation Street Music I'm not sure the world needs it uh, another lovely bit of news today was that the Edinburgh Fringe Festival always been respected for wonderful new Brighton some really funny comedians go up there David Hasselhoff's taken a one man play up there well, one man play the Hoff is taking a show yeah, up to Edinburgh a show not a play is it He's just going up there. He's going to do a little bit of talking, a little bit of yeah. comedy. What would you rather watch? David Hasselhoff do a one-man show or Coronation Street the musical? It's a tough one. It is It is tough, but it's simple, isn't it? Hasselhoff, next question. Yeah, I suppose so. But what do you think is the merits of watching David Hasselhoff do a one-man show well, or a comedian? His, his car can talk, for one. Yeah, there is a cat in this room where we're recording this. I might ask that the questions. I think we're going to get a better response. Also... The news has come through. The, the Scots are all raging up there. In They're always raging. Like They're Scottish, aren't they? Yeah, but this is because the Art Council's been cut again. Yeah. They've cut the funding. Oh, imagine things. all those council estates and governor crying into their tenant super, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it probably won't affect them too much. But it would affect other no, artistic will, endeavours. But it's all right for David Hasselhoff to go out there with a one-man show and sit there and be like, oh, David Hasselhoff. Yeah, well, the Scottish, they're paying to go watch David Hasselhoff. They're not paying to watch... Doc Jock McSporran play Macbeth. So that's obviously affected you, that news about David Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff. Is that a tear? I'm, no, I'm going to... You forgot what we were talking about already, haven't you? Scotland, wasn't it? Rapsy Nesbitt. Unbelievable. Also news, which would excite a lot of people, I should imagine, is that this year, London's Shakespeare Globe Theatre, which is the perfectly recreated theatre that Shakespeare would have played on, they're going to start to do performances of plays... At midnight. Midnight? This summer, yeah. So that means if you're out in town or you have a long dinner or you go out at nine o'clock for something to eat, you can then stroll down, if the weather's nice, along the South Bank and go enjoy a play under the moon. That's great. I mean, Because that's one thing that's um, 
does frustrate me with London at times is it, it can get to about midnight. There's not much to do, is there? A lot of the pubs do close at 11, half 11, and you don't know where to go. So I think to actually have an option to watch some theatre, quality theatre, probably, hopefully, at a knockdown price being that late at night. That could only be, be a good down, thing. It won't be a knockdown price, I shouldn't have thought. I would have thought it would be expensive. Because picks could be really popular. People are going to want to do it. Well, uh, okay. Well, I'm not going to pay. No? No. Okay. I expect they're really scared about that. And uh, that's the news. If you've got any comments about this, we'd love to hear them. Would you like to go and see a play at the Globe at midnight, for example? What do you think about David Hasselhoff's show? Are you going to go and see it? And are you desperately sad that Corrie the Musical's been pulled? Please let us know. Tweet us at... At at Wheelers. At Wireless Theatre. Okay, cool. And uh, coming up now, we've got some exclusive interviews with some very interesting people. What do we want? And I'm actually a little bit excited. When do we want it now? What do we want? Betty's hot pot. What are you doing? What are you doing? Shut up. What's that? Betty's hot pot, the song. What's Betty's hot pot, the song? You moron. I'm just thinking, Coronation Street, the musical, huge problems. I step in, bish, bash, bosh. Paula Grady's happy. Everyone's being paid. I've livened the thing up a bit. Move on. Come on. Let's not let's not sit back and talk about it. Let's, oh my God. Let's get Mark, things going. Mark, We can shut save up. this. Just be quiet. The North needs us. And I'm Go going away. up there. Go what away. do we want? That is hard part. <laughs> when do we want it now? Oh, that's horrible. What Go in the we, corner. What? Leave me alone. Okay, I'm just going to work on a, like, a little reprieve. Go in the corner. After the alone. interval. I want a nice little... Steve McDonald, Steve McDonald, go away. Steve McDonald, I need a cab, I need a cab, Steve McDonald. That problem is, that's about as good as it probably will be if they ever make it. Can you hear that? Unbelievable. Listen, folks, don't listen to that. Listen to this. We've now got some interviews with Colin Watkins, Claire Dowie, Jeremy Stockwell, all involved in Lost Theatre's Face to Face Festival. That's interesting and informative and good. What he's doing is hideous. Enjoy. So we are here with Colin Watkeys, Claire Dowie, Jeremy Stockwell. You're the director of the uh, festival, aren't you, Colin? Yeah, I suppose festival director for the face-to-face festival of solo theatre. It sounds very grand, doesn't it? But it's great. Um, So what got you into solo theatre in the first place? Um... It was only recently that I realised that it was a thing that I did. I mean, when, when I, I've, I've been working in theatre for longer than I care to mention or say, but in 1981, when I was working with Nika Burns, who's now, um, she's now the uh, impres- West End impresario of NIMAX Theatres. I mean, she's, she's like that. She was in the first company that I worked with. I was doing a production called Dulcimer. And in that production, that's over 30 years ago, I cleared everybody else out apart from the one solo performer and I realised that I've been doing that ever since and my interest was about the relationship between the performer and the audience because I didn't really like the way theatre was and we were toured around a lot I started doing stand-up comedy or alternative cabaret as it was called then I ran ran the Finborough Cabaret and that was all about the relationship between the solo performer and the audience it wasn't all comedians it was all sorts of people doing all sorts of different things in those times and from that, I started working with Claire Dowie and Ken Campbell and various other solo performers. Timberwolf Cabaret was a, was a great place. I mean, Colin was running that at the time as well. Did he mention that? <laughs> <laughs> but a load of people started there, you know, like people like um, Julian Clary and uh, Paul Merton and all those, all those comedians that are up there now all played the Finbrook because it was kind of a, a nice sort of a nice atmosphere. It was a, held about 50 or 80 people and it was just a, a nice place where you could experiment if you like you know Colin's always been one for for not just having normal ordinary people who are popular for want of a better word but you know having obscure people and people who do weird and wonderful things and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but that's the beauty of it is that you never do know until it happens you know so you had the freedom to do what you like I was originally a stand-up comedian but I got kind of bored I mean, this was before it took off with television and everything like that. You know, talk about you know leaving when everything started getting good. Mm-hmm. I left when everything was getting good. Um, because I just got bored with always having to come up with a punchline. I mean, there were things I wanted to say, and I wanted it to be funny, but I didn't want to have to go ba-dum-boomf all the time, ba-dum-boomf. So then we sort of like started doing sort of solo theatre kind of thing because I wanted to marry theatre with stand-up comedy. There's a dear fellow called Colin Watkins, who you've probably heard of, and 
we got chatting because um, I made a show about a mutual friend called Ken Campbell. So I called Colin, and he said, oh, yes, I'll come along. So he came um, a couple of years ago now to see the first incarnation of the Ken Campbell show I did. Um, and uh, we became sort of mates, really. And I said, look, I, this is improvised based on some memories of Ken and some channeling of Ken and some stories and dreams and whatnot. And um, so I said, well, maybe we should make another one. What, what um, we're hearing a lot, actually, from, from yourself and the other people we've spoken to, all of you are referencing Ken Campbell. Mm. Um, and you're all now in solo theatre. And I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about why you think that is and, and the kind of scene that led to solo theatre emerging. For me, working with Ken at the National Theatre in 1988, 88 and 89, he, um, he, was, he, did, he said, oh, you know, come with me, I'm making a show. And it's called um, Confessions of a Furtive Nudist. <laughs> so I said, oh, sure. I, I went to the Finborough. Funny enough, um, that's the venue that, that Colin used to run. So I saw Ken's show and I thought, golly, this is rather fun, you know. And I can mouth off and I can talk to people. And so I made a show. Funny, I hadn't thought about it till you asked the question, really. I made a show in 1989 called The Pop-Up Man, which I did on about half a dozen venues, but it was sort of heavily influenced by just getting it up and having a bit of a caper. The Fimbra Cabaret at that time, and it was run by, by Colin, and, and, and I know uh, Claire Dyer was in, involved in it too, um, that it was, it was a hotbed of talent and people were trying stuff out. And it was a time, I think, in the early 80s, wasn't it, when... when People, I think, because of the economy, because of the recession, because of the fear that's put about in the press and in the media, as similarly to now, I suppose, that people felt, oh gosh, you know, I really must try something else. I'm fed up with any number of theatre companies in this wonderful city of ours who will, doesn't matter what the play is, doesn't matter what the content is, they will do it in exactly the same way. And it seems to me quite often totally um, um, inappropriate. And also, and also the, the sort of like the political theatre or the supposedly um, uh, you know, culturally questioning theatre still sort of like uses the old forms. I went to a, 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 um, a thing at the bush the other day and it was all these young, young women... Um, saying exactly the same things as we said in the 80s. It's like nothing's changed. When you were, when you were developing a style, this style of solo theatre, mm. that that was, in a way, a political reaction to the, uh, the current work that was going on? Yeah. yeah. To be honest, yes. To be honest, um, with, when I was saying about being a stand-up comedy, comedian, and, and television was just starting to get interested, Channel 4 and all that sort of stuff, so a lot of the comedians really started to get bland. They started to like do their acts for television, you know, in case anybody was in the audience. So it was a kind of a reaction to that, and also because I'm a working class person, I was, you know, Colin would take me to the theatres and stuff like that, and I think, mm, God, this is dull. <laughs> <laughs> so it was also a reaction to that. So I wanted to do something that that was exciting but was dying in stand-up comedy. I don't, I don't know if it's, it's it's better anymore. I don't know, but you know, at that time. That, that specific time when, when Channel 4 turned up, um, I wanted the excitement that was before that with stand-up because it was really exciting in the early 80s to be a stand-up comedian. I mean, anything could have happened, you know. And, and theatre, I just wanted to give a kick up the ass, really. Not to get too deep or political and heavy about it, but there is a great fear, I think, of artists having a go. Trying, and what's going on in Turkey at the moment where the, uh, the Prime Minister is saying uh, the state is running the theatre? It's horrible. I'm off to Turkey to, to, to lead some workshops and give a show uh, in July, so I'm very interested to see quite what that is. There are some independent theatres there, but they're, you know, the young bloods coming through, the artists. The artist has always represented a very fearful force, which is why, when, perhaps when governments get into power, and, and not this, this, this government, they start cutting back the arts, the first thing to go. If you've got ideas, you've got politic, you know, political ideas against the establishment, it's silencing you because you can't get money, you can't get sponsorship, you can't get a gig. Uh, what sort of people do you think uh, should be thinking about solo theatre? That's what's really interesting. I mean, several things have been pointed out to me. One, that every time any actor goes for an audition, 
if they could only think of it that they were doing a piece of solo theatre and they were connecting and engaging with the, the, um, whoever's in the panel auditioning them and whatever, they, whatever they've got planned, whatever the material is, if they actually were there connecting completely, waiting for them to look up, waiting for them to, to see what, what they've got to offer rather than just doing it as if there's a blank screen behind, between you and the performer. That's the fundamental, so that everybody, I think, needs the skill to do it. I mean, if you're making a pitch, you're going to a, an interview, making a pitch for a job or some idea that you've got, you've got, to, you've got to be there, you've got to engage with the people that you're talking to, and you've got to you know, look in their eyes and see, did you understand what I'm talking about? Too often, actors who've had conventional training where the energy is coming from their fellow performers on stage and they're not actually, you know, there's a fourth wall between them and the audience and they're getting all this energy from on stage. Um, Too too often, you can actually rehearse with them and they'll rehearse in the studio with you. Yeah, it's fine. But then, faced with an audience, they sort of like seem to take a step back. They seem to sort of like go less. You have to rely on the audience. You have to... You know how actors will feed off each other? They'll turn into each other and they'll feed off each other and they get all their energy and what have you and emotion from each other as actors. Whereas you can't. You're standing on the stage, you're on your own and hopefully you haven't got very many props or costumes or scenery or all that stuff. You have to rely on the audience to give you some feedback. So it's like the audience is the other member of the company really and it kind of changes every night because depending on the feelings of the audience in the system i don't find much in the way of the luxury of failure and certainly as a, as a young man uh, i could f- fall on my ass i could die a lot you know in improvisational stuff i did you know we'd get into terrible trouble and just screw up big time but i don't think that there's the capacity to even entertain that. People want it slick. And good. Certainly, you know, Edinburgh Festival is a point, isn't it? One goes to Edinburgh Festival and sees very finished shows as opposed to people trying it out. And part of this festival here, at, at last, really, is to try stuff out. And we'll be trying stuff out. And we'll be falling down. And we'll be getting up and we'll try it again. Um, fail, fail again, fail better, <laughs> as, uh, as our man Beckett says. You're running a lot of workshops on, on the festival, aren't you? So our, our listeners should probably get down and yes, uh, um, yes, come, come just give us an idea of that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, two, there's two strands. There's, there's a Monday evening. There's a Monday evening workshop, um, which is every Monday at 7 o'clock from the end of April, beginning of May. Um, and that's for people who want to work on something to perform in the festival. And they might be short pieces. They might be sort of five, ten minutes long. But they will be working on something which is of them for them to perform in the festival over that 10-week period. And then there's a more intensive workshop for the first week of the festival. That's from the, what is it, the, the, the 9th to the 13th. I think that's the first week, the Monday to Friday, where they will work all day for that week on, on their pieces to perform something on the, on the Friday evening. So, so that's another performance opportunity. But then there will be workshops in the second week on the, on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah, the, the daytime, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so those five days, there'll be workshops for them to come and participate. That's for people to have a, have a look at stuff, not, not, not connected with performance at all, but people who might be um, thinking, no, I just want to feel yeah. what it's like. <laughs> but, I mean, of course, you can never make anybody perform, but I just think that people will want to, having gone through the process, they'll want to share. Everybody's got a story. They'll find a story somewhere. The one question they have is the same. And the question they're all asking in some form or other is, is it all right to be who I am? And I think when we make theatre like we're making here in this festival, we just get up and we talk and we see what happens. It's not saying it's going to be about this, the end is going to be that, this is the product. No, it's process. And in terms of people who are coming to perform, um, we'll hopefully be coming in and talking to them throughout the time. Is there anyone who stands out as a highlight for you or someone that you're particularly looking forward to seeing? I I look forward to seeing all of them, but then I see them, I work with them all all the time anyway. So this is, I mean, as I was saying, that you know, it started off... Um, sort of 30, year, 30 years ago that I've been doing this. This is actually... I've, I've got really annoyed by people calling them one-man shows. 
mm-hmm. and, and, and saying, well, it's storytelling, isn't it, or whatever. No, no, it's theatre, it's solo theatre, and I'm wanting to, to up it and celebrate it. The work that Claire Dowie does is extraordinary, and it's not like anybody else. Jack Claff's doing some pieces. I mean, his work is extraordinary. And, and Jeremy, Jeremy Stockhoff, to come back to the Ken Campbell connection, he is, he is doing a show which is inspired by Ken. That's going to be the first performance of that piece. Um, but then there's pieces by Guy Dartnell, who I've done some work with, his travels with my virginity, um, a f- wonderful verbatim piece which comes out of recorded interviews. Yes. Louise Wallinger does. Um, um, she's doing a new piece on neighbours, which is about the trouble people have with their neighbours. Which I'm, I mean, the, the the first initial ideas that she's she's been doing on that have been great. There's a Russian company coming called Minicult, Minicult from Russia, uh, who I'm helping with their visa at the moment, and La Palabra from Spain who coincidentally are both doing versions of Claire Dowie's Wise John and Wearing a Skirt, one in Russian and one in Spanish. And they both wanted to come over and perform in London, so I said, well, you've got to come and perform. Solo. It's a solo piece. So we'll have the same play in Russian and in Spanish. And on the um, Wednesday and Thursday of the second week, there'll be workshops in between where we can actually discuss the cultural differences. I'm, I'm planning on being here and seeing just about everything. What happens in recessionary times is people have to be very adaptable and come up with new ideas. And I think that what this festival here is doing at last at this time is reflective of the society. It's come about because of this situation. And it is allowing artists and actors from all over the world to come together and celebrate and say, do you know what? We're still here. The cobbled streets of coronation Uh, Mark, come over here. Mark, come back. Come back, come back. What's that? Okay, sit down. Enough. Yeah, I just need to work on that yeah, uh, middle it. section. I yeah, think I'm just taking up an octave. We're yeah. probably getting onto something there. Yeah, you are. I'll you set are. up to Granada. Let's stop talking now. I'll tell you what, let's talk about the wireless fifth birthday party we both attended. Oh, that was a crazy night, wasn't it? It was good, yeah. Yeah. Um, Chelsea won the Champions League final. Yeah, well, yeah, Chelsea they? went on penalties, didn't they? Yeah. Did he last game? Stuff. And then after that, we had to go back down to the party, didn't yeah. we? But you know, but it was very nice to see friends, um, young and old. You know, people that have been involved in the wireless theatre company for the past five years. Yes, and lots and lots of people turned up. It really was a splendid evening. Hi, welcome to Wireless Theatre's five-year birthday bash. Oh, here in London's Oxford Street. What yeah. pub are we in? Uh, the old explorer. The old explorer. We're outside the gents. You can't see that, yeah, but at the nice. moment we're holding our breath because it smells of so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to have a little walk around there's quite a few people here that have been involved with wireless theatre in the last five years half a decade and we're going to have chats with them it's going to make up part of the next podcast great do you want to say anything um that's great so we'll see you around cheers this is Matt hiya Matt Blair yeah it's me yeah who's a a real Proper legend in the wireless theatre canon. So, Matt. Uh, yeah, hello. In the last five years, yes. what would you say wireless has done for you? The, the tech work that I got from yeah. it, the sound engineering and the editing, and also the friendships that I made from yeah. it as well. I mean, Mario is, is, is more the legend than I am. Yeah. I must <laughs> just explain, place, yeah. Matt has not only done, you've done some music for the show. Yes, I have. Yeah, does yeah, the yeah. sound a lot for the live shows. Yeah. And have you been in any? Uh, I, well, no, just the music of the shows. I've not actually performed live in a show right. yet. Yet. But <laughs> he will be. So he will literally be a wireless theatre all-rounder. Am I talking really loud? No, not really. Oh, right, no fine, more than usual, you gobby bastard. <laughs> this is Mike... What's your acting name? Garnell. This is Mike... Mike Garnell. This is Mike Tomlinson. Garnell. And, uh, Garnell, sorry. That's his equity name. Those, um, the... Uh, the avid listener will remember him from the last podcast. Yeah, talking about the price of his drinks. Yeah, um, I think about two things I said made the cut. Yeah, uh, that, and they were rubbish. Blame the techie, sure. Yeah, blame Not the techie. Probably. The producer. Yeah. Like you've been enjoying the day, mate. I have been. Is it that obvious? <laughs> I've been drinking all day. Raving. Raving. Okay, Mike. Here to celebrate wireless theatre five years. Yeah. Great. What Great would you say has been your favourite working experience with Wireless Theatre? Out of all the productions you've done, and you've done quite a few, yeah. what would you say is the one you've enjoyed the most? I would say, well, it's got to be Lionel Blair. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Spend, I've spent about an hour mincing around with Lionel Blair. And what was amazing. the main that you did? Uh, uh, so have I seen Gino Dinelli uh, is still dead, part two. Uh, it's just been put sequel. up. The sequel. 
Uh, I was in the first one as well, but not as big a part. But uh, the second one was directed by the Techie. The Techie's holding yeah. this thing. Did you do the first one, Techie? I didn't do the first one. No, no I didn't. No, no. So. No, the no, first no. one was really good. Yeah. Uh, the first one was really second good. One. If the first yeah. one was so good, why did they have to get me in for the second? <laughs> yeah, fucking right. That's good. Well, it's all right. <laughs> the third one we made, we didn't use you. Uh, <laughs> Is there a third one? Yeah. When will they end? For the love of God. What is it? What's going on? It's, a, it's the podcast. What? We're joined with the um, the extraordinary Steve Hill. Steve Hill. The um, what's your name, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. What's your name, isn't it? That is my name. No acting name, equity names. Because Mike had about 50 names. Yeah, we're here tonight, Steve. Um, yeah, yeah, we were. Well, well observed. Sorry, that is well observed. Champions League final, we're missing. Um, I know, mean, well, that's really annoying, isn't it? It is that annoying. Is right. It is really annoying. I can't concentrate on this interview just at the thought yeah. that Philip Lam might be taking a throw in. Neil Neil last time we checked. Yeah, we were going to ask you, um, obviously, uh, Wireless Theatre, five years old yeah. um, now. What does Wireless Theatre mean to you? And what's been a particular highlight for you during the past five years? Um, well, uh, I wrote uh, a few things um, that probably have been sat on my computer. I wrote uh, Gino Ginelli is dead and Gino Ginelli is still dead and a third which is going to follow which would have been sat on my PC doing nothing. I sent it to Channel 4 and they didn't want it. They'd rather make a Friday night project with cunts. Well, you, you can edit this, can't you? Yeah. You can edit this, good. Yeah, but I might not. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I had this sort of script that I'd sent off to one person and I didn't really do much about it. And then I kind of um, gave it to Mario, who liked it a lot. And I kind of feel like I wouldn't... It was one idea which has turned into a trilogy... And from then on, I've sort of written some more stuff. Open Spots, which we did as the last live wireless show, which is probably my personal highlight because it's about something which I sort of am genuinely involved in, in stand-up comedy and the life of a rubbish stand-up comedian, which is what I am. Can I just say, Steve (laughs) is available for bar mitzvahs, funerals. You do funerals, don't you? Only children's funerals. Yeah. This standing by this... Thing. We're not getting the screen and we're by the toilet, so I don't think we should stand here. Yeah, 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 yeah I think I'm with you. Well, it smells of shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it was quite good though, because Steve said some nice things about wireless, so it was worth the smell of shit for a little bit. Hello, I'm back with perhaps after Marielle, Wireless Theatre's most important contributor, Jack Bowman. Jack! Hello, how you doing? All right, mate, give us a little bit of how wireless has been a part of your life in the last five years. I know it's been a lot. But tell the camera and the mic just how, how it's affected your life. Uh, well, basically, uh, I wrote a play five years ago. A few people came to see it, including Marielle. And uh, off the back of that, bless her, Marielle was the only person who went, I quite like that, I quite like what you do, come help me out with wireless. Uh, so we uh, worked on the play, we turned it into a radio play, it was Frozen. Uh, and it was the first thing Mario Cool did and basically it's sort of like she enticed me into the room she shut the door behind me switched out the lights and I've never found the exit since and what would you say Jack is your favourite project you worked on in the wireless theatre canon out of the ones you've done it's a lot it's it's loads it depends whether I'm acting writing or directing but I mean obviously the big one at the minute is the whole Spring Hill Jack thing that we're doing we we recorded three with Julian Glover legends uh, we've just this week recorded another three, uh, which was uh, like a massive project. And in two to three months' time, we record another three episodes. So, and that will be, by the time we get them done, through wireless, because it's almost as old as wireless, Spring Hill Jack, uh, yeah. six years of my life. And Marielle, again, was the one person who said, yes, let's, let's do this. And, and people love it, and we're I mean, still loving it every single day. Because uh, you're a, a great example of why she set the project up, the whole thing, because she wanted to utilise her creative friends to do something worthwhile and creative, which you stepped up and taken care of, really, a lot of. And also, this is a very, very important thing. I mean, like, if you if you work as an actor for a theatre company, even if it's in fringe, and you might... I, I, I worked for a company that did new writing, and I said, look, I write as well, here's a script. And they went, yes, but you're an actor. An actor with Marielle, she, she gives you this freedom that you don't normally get, which yeah. is allows you to slight, you know, if you say I fancy directing, she goes, Okay, yeah, all right, 
Here's yeah. a script. You go off. Let's try some directing. You know. So uh, the experience you gain through wireless is just like phenomenal. Invaluable. Yeah, where's he gone? He's gone to check the football score. Bastard. Because she's organised this night, the night of the Champion League's final, which is good. However, this is full of actors. Actors that say they like football are lying. So they think it's blokey. No actor likes football. Uh, we're speaking to Stuart, who you will remember from the Fringe Report Awards, uh, who told me that there was a cracking set of breasts behind me. And that turned out to be a lie to see if I would look. So that, that should give you the measure of the man, I suppose. With regard to wireless, you've been around since the beginning, haven't you, really? Oh, yes, right from the very start. So over the last five years, what have really been the highlights for you? I In terms of shows, from my point of view, the, the Grimm at Stotterson Hall was a, was a real highlight. Um, I think that was probably the, the tipping point where wireless turned from um, just a, a small bunch of people trying to get it on, no matter how difficult that might have been, you know, beg, borrow, steal, um, using analogue eight-track recorders and you know SM58s and just trying to be as creative as we could with the technology available to us and I think from that point onwards then we started to um, move more into more modern recording techniques and and, and branching out into 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 a uh, little bit more subversive areas and and so what what made that the tipping point I suppose what was the what was the catalyst we've, we've heard from Jack Bowman this evening about um, uh, about how Marielle kind of kicked the whole thing off, you know. Uh, but I suppose if, if that was the moment it moved forward, what 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 sort of combination of factors came together to make that the moment it all jumped forward? I think that with with the um, like I said, the equipment available to us, that was as far as we could have taken that before we had to revolutionise and where we, we had to start making thinking bigger and and making the, making the shows bigger, involving lighting, uh, involving. Um, uh, more eclectic venues, uh, which is which is the way it then went, you know, with like with the Roundhouse show, which was, I think the Roundhouse show would come a close second to that, but because it was so diluted, there were so many people working on it, uh, I didn't feel the same sense of control over it, you know. And and with regard to that, um, and you know, there's companies. I mean, we all know there's companies that go bust every day. I mean, there's no money in theatres; they don't really go bust per se. But they disappear; they stop working. We've been here five years. Why do you think the longevity? Hard work. I don't really think that it's anything environmental. Uh, I don't think it's anything to do with input or output. Uh, I don't think it's anything to do with anything other than Marielle. Uh, she's single-handedly through thick and thin. I mean, I, I was looking at. I, I was fortunate enough to see the um, slideshow that we're going to be treated to later. Uh, oh, it's, oh, it's running. Uh, yeah, well, she sent me the slides and was like, what do you think of this? And it, my mind boggled looking at the statistics of like 650,000 downloads in five years. Incredible. Now I've got my colleague, Mark. I'm going to ask him what I've asked everyone. Mark, what's your favourite wireless theatre memory? The Almeida. Okay. Um, thank you, Mark. <laughs> is there any? Is there any fear we can elaborate on that, Mark? Is there any fear we can elaborate on that, or, or just? No, no. Enough said. The Almeida. Really, for a mass audience, is that quite? That's the only thing. For anyone, for anyone who's been to the toilets in the Almeida, they know. They know. Fair, fair enough. Theatre. He just said the Almeida. That is the only theatre he's clearly heard of. He, he doesn't. He's not even sure if it's oh, a theatre or an ice cream. What? I know loads of theatres. All right. What are the ones? Famous ones, you know. Yeah. The Theatre of Dreams, <laughs> Old Trafford. <laughs> so, I should point out for those listeners who aren't watching the fabulous clip on YouTube that the minute there was a goal. Both of these bastards scarpered up the stairs. They so also go to penalties, so we will go and watch that. Uh, well, that's us fucked then, isn't it? You know, I'm standing in front of two sound engineers and I've failed to correctly press the record button on my mobile unit. I am mortified and deserve to die, don't I, to Shari and Malcolm, our favourite sound designer. You have proved poor sound engineering skills. Poor, poor man, poor. It's not good enough, is it? Oh, just trying to make it sound brilliant. <laughs> In terms of, on a more serious level, in terms of both of you guys, um, what, what's wireless mean for you? Wireless has been awesome. 
while this has been a chance to get back into theatre, um, which I've missed because I stopped working in it, been a chance to get back into theatre, it's been a chance to get into radio, it's been um, a chance to get back in the studio, it's been all sorts of stuff, so amazing and I love it. And welcome. Uh, well, this uh, has been uh, uh, you know, a lot of fun and um, yeah, ex exciting stuff, something that you can't do uh, every day at work, but uh, outside of work it's just absolute class. So who are we with, Marielle? So we are now with Emma Taylor and Alex Smith. Well, Emma Taylor, well, you can out, you can out Cafe Theatre and Leicester Square Theatre respectively, but also both wonderful producers and uh, performers and writers and all that jazz in their own right. In five years, you know, uh, a thousand theatre companies will have come and died. You know, why is Wireless still here? I think it's very fresh, and I think what Marielle has a knack for doing is finding a lot of very interesting underground, but also old-school dramas as well. Um, so I think she's got um, a real gift at finding um, very talent. It's an absolute platform for all sorts of innovation and creativity, and it's completely open to people coming in and just going, I've got this script, I have this idea, I have this thing, what can we do with it? And it's not a closed door, which is quite rare. So five years ago, in a lonely bedsit in West London, there's a drunk actress. She's, she's polished off the best part of a bottle of vodka, and she's thought, screw this, I'm better than this, I'm going to set up a company, which is what she did, and uh, she's here. To be honest, it's not really got that much to do with me. It's to do with all the people who are here tonight, various different technical and creative people who've made wireless what it is. So it's not really that much to do with me. It's been to do with all the people who are here tonight and obviously various people who couldn't make it, who have made it what it is over the last five years. No, it's not. It's fucking not. It's not. It's not. It's not. We from Jack and he said the point is that what you do is that you give power to people who otherwise wouldn't have it. Yeah, I know, but I don't have like okay, maybe give them a forum, but the wireless would only be what it is if it was it wasn't like all the talented people have made it what it is. Believe me, when I first started the company, I was told by a good friend, you will live and die by the quality of the work that you produce. If it had just been me producing, it would have been endless buy-ups about the fucking Beatles. So actually, really, the 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 reason why it's doing well is because the quality of the work is amazing, and that is partly to do with me, but mostly to do with amazing amount of talented people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you. You've made it happen because you've you found people and you found people that can do things and you've used their talent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah? Um, why in the first place did you choose to do it? What was the spark? What was the thing that made you say, fuck it, I'm gonna do it? Uh, I think the like, same way as way any actor, because I came from an acting background, sets up any kind of company, basically, to find work for yourself. Um, and initially I wanted to cast myself into as much things as possible. I realised quite quickly that in the end. I'm not really that good and actually there's a lot of really really great people and actually I loved producing as much as I love acting so the main reason was I mean obviously I've loved I've loved audio and I've loved and I, I really saw a gap in the market for modern audio where everyone's downloading stuff it makes sense to have theatre that you can download and then from there it just spiraled, spiraled really really quickly and then enough so many talented I mean I worked at a place where I was surrounded by really talented people there's a goal I think I've worked with a lot of talented people before I started Wireless, so I already knew there was a base there of talented people who were around to do stuff, and it just sort of went from there. That'll do, I think. <laughs> well, you never fuck around with the boss, man. So, lads, uh, it's uh, the part. It's 11 o'clock. The part is in no danger of winding down anytime soon, but we thought we'd just get your ideas near it. Well, it's been a it's been a cracking evening, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been ups and downs. Yeah, tears like all good knees ups involving yeah, yeah. actors. Lots of promise at the start, and it all descends into a tearful mess. So we're ending yeah. it at the right time, I think. But uh, yeah. and Drogba got the winner. Yeah, so everyone's happy with that. But seriously, on a serious note, it is an extraordinary company, and really, we're here to celebrate the company, but also its founder, Marielle Runacre Temple. She late me saying this, but she's done amazing things, and. Uh, it's a privilege to know her and be part of her wonderful company. And I do mean that seriously. Amazing, really. It's a shame the industry hasn't got more people like her. Really. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're going to go and have a couple of sherbets. Yeah. What are you having? You still have your Diet Cokes? Yeah, I'm yeah. not drinking. I used to be an alcoholic. Um, oh, Ken Baller's acting career. He's uh, 
he's still going through the list of songs he's going to send to the Coronation Street musical. It seems a very apt way to end this. I'm about to go and hang from a lamppost. Could you imagine what this must be like for me? Oh, my God. Anyway, thank you for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. You've listened to... I'm losing the thread of this because of this hideous noise. Hope you've enjoyed all the interviews. Oh, God. Um, Please tweet us at wireless theatre hashtag wide up about anything we've talked about on this podcast. And uh, please do tune in next month for more of the same. I promise there's not going to be any singing. And I know for a fact why there's not going to be any singing, because after I've signed off on this, I'm going to stab him. Thank you very much. I can see that. I can see that now. I can see that now. In the background, cobbles and like walls and Coronation Street, Rover's Return and all that.